Welcome to the Weekly Standard Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Graham. With us from Capitol Hill is Stephen Hayes. Steve, uh, so uh, there's a lot of talk in D.C. about places far away, places that President Obama would like for us to completely forget about, like Iraq and Syria. Yeah, there is a lot of talk on that. I mean, you know, you've got most members of Congress still back in their districts, but you've got well, certainly a lot of speculation about the extent to which the Obama administration is having to reverse itself on its policies of non-engagement um, and its disdain for any type of military action in Iraq and, and Syria. And you're, you're in the process of watching the president having to reverse himself. And I think the big question will be, where does that support come from if there is support for him on Capitol Hill? Democrats, Republicans, some kind of a mixture. You know, it's interesting. I remember when the president made a decision about Syria saying it was absolutely the moral right thing for Americans to do to take military action against Assad. And then in the same paragraph, he said, I've made another decision, which I've decided to let Congress decide if this is the right decision. And now he's made another, another decision, which is we absolutely must do something inside Syria. Yeah, and you, you hear echoes of that that speech that the president gave where he effectively reversed himself. I mean, it was very clear that the president and the rest of the administration had put America on sort of a war-footing path. It's a limited war, a war-footing path. He had that very strong speech by John Kerry uh, a day before. And, and, you know, at that point, you know, I was talking to, to reporters who cover the White House on a daily basis, and they were changing their plans for the weekend because... They had been, been been advised by the White House to, to keep things open, looked like something was imminent. And then all of a sudden, the president takes a walk on the South Lawn with Dennis McDonough, his chief of staff, and decides to go to Congress, decides to take himself to Congress. And I think the White House thought this was a very clever political play at the time so that they could trap Republicans who were, you know, at the same time urging him to do something about Assad, who had crossed the red line that the president had declared had used and moved chemical weapons. But the president thought it was a clever play to sort of trap Republicans in their own rhetoric. Of course, what mattered most was not what Republicans were doing, but what Assad was doing, what the Syrian rebels were doing, and what groups like ISIS were doing. And I think we're now seeing the consequences of, of that decision uh, both play out in, in the region and play out here back at home, where the president's lost any amount of good faith he, he might have had among Republicans who would have supported that kind of an effort back then. And certainly we've seen the mess that, that we've uh, had in, in Iraq and Syria and elsewhere. So, Steve Hayes, are we going to see the White House that declared the Assad regime uh, immoral and criminal for its use of chemical weapons against uh, its own people now as an ally inside Syria? And we're going to be bombing on behalf of the Syrian uh, uh, regime. I know that they've been explicit in saying we're not going to coordinate, we're not going to work with these people. But there's, there's, it's hard to look at this as anything else other than giving aid and comfort to the Assad regime inside Syria by bombing its enemies. Right. And I don't think that means we shouldn't do it. I mean, it may be the case that we end up helping somebody that we've regarded as an enemy uh, that, that's done tremendous damage to, to uh, his country, uh, killed tens, if not hundreds of thousands of his own citizens by going after ISIS. But I don't think there's any question that the immediate threat to the United States in its interest is ISIS and the growing threat presented by the, the territorial grab, the land grab that we've seen ISIS 
make uh, over the past six plus months. And, and, you know, it's aspirations to go much further and to strike the United States and the homeland. The president needs to, to I think, hit ISIS, hit him hard, uh, certainly much harder than, than he has. Um, but it, it, this isn't the only way in which the president has reversed himself on a policy. You know, now we may be giving sort of indirect help to the Assad regime. I hope we wouldn't be coordinating with him, but we if we hit ISIS, we would be giving indirect help to the Assad regime in all likelihood. But remember, it was just three weeks ago in an interview with Tom Friedman, the New York Times, that the president said it was a fantasy to think that uh, giving any kind of aid or additional arms to the Syrian opposition, the moderate Syrian opposition, as he calls it, um, would have made any kind of a difference. And yet what we saw in the New York Times article yesterday laying out the White House's strategy, if you want to call it a strategy, is that the president's pushing very hard for additional uh, arms to those moderate Syrian forces. Now, that comes a couple years too late, and it comes after the president, three weeks after the president has, had expressly said that it was a fantasy to think it would make any difference. But there you have, I think, in a nutshell, the administration's rather incoherent, uh, ad hoc approach to, to decision-making on Syria, on Iraq, on on virtually every aspect of the region. Uh, Steve, you made a good point, and we should acknowledge that since it's so rare. That No, I'm kidding. Um, you may, I wanted to give you a little special report vibe true. there if this I could. No, but true. you make a good point that it is not uncommon for America to take military actions that help people we don't like because there's someone we like even less on the field. The obvious example is working with the Soviet Union in World War II. But as we did so, we had a larger mission, a larger American foreign policy that was then revealed by the Marshall Plan and by Truman's actions and then by right. Eisenhower after him. If someone asks me right now, okay, no, whatever, so you're going to be helping some, you know, you're going to work with Iran in Iraq, inside Iraq, you're going to work with the uh, Alawites inside Syria, these are all bad guys who've been your enemies for decades, but we get it, but what's the big picture I couldn't answer that question. I have no idea no. what President Obama's big picture is. It's going to be, uh, we're going to bomb people and leave uh, 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 Hassan, Hassan, in, Hassan in power, and then we're going to wish he wasn't in power again? That's the plan? Right. And there's a reason that you have no idea what the president's plan is, and that's because the president has no idea what his strategy is. I don't think that there is a coherent strategy in the White House, I don't think that there's been a coherent strategy from the beginning of the administration. And you don't have to, you know, you don't have to rely on someone who writes for a conservative opinion magazine for that view. You can read it when you when you read comments both on the record and on background from former administration advisors who say there is no strategy. And you had the, the, the former U.S. ambassador to Syria leave in protest because there was no strategy. So, I mean, you're certainly to be forgiven for not understanding where the president's going with this because nobody understands where the president's going with this. What I think we, we have to be careful to do, though, is not allow, you know, his, his, um, his inability to come up with a strategy to keep us from doing what I think is at, at the very least in the immediate interest of the United States, and that is hitting ISIS and preventing its continued uh, land grab. I mean, that can't, that cannot continue, uh, as we've heard from senior intelligence officials on the record and in background interviews for months now. That presents an immediate threat to the United States of America, and if we don't do something about it, 
we will be hit here. Uh, he's got to do something about it. So we're, I'm watching this from outside D.C. We're talking to you. You're actually on Capitol Hill right now. You know, there's a lot of thinking that when issues like presidential vacations or spending on Air Force One and, you know, minor things like that come up, that it's kind of boob bait for the Bubba's that, you know, you know, they don't understand the nuances. Of course, you have to have vacations. Of course, you have to spend money on foreign policy and, and on foreign, uh, you know, a, a foreign aid, etc. But I'm wondering, is this a different moment with the way the president has personally behaved the last couple of weeks? Is he did he cross some line by, for example, going straight from the announcement that an American has been beheaded and we're outraged to within mere minutes being back on the golf course? Is, is this a point where it's not just the kind of populists like Michael Graham out there whipping up the people with the pitchforks, but that even the insider elites are going, man, th this is not how we expect presidents to behave. Yeah, I think it has. And as evidence, I would point to a New York Times piece, uh, I believe it was the day after, maybe two days after uh, that incident that you talked about, where the president went out and spoke about the James Foley execution and then headed straight to the golf course. And, by the way, had sent out an email, a fundraiser email, just prior to his uh, having gone out and spoken about James Foley. So you had this this you know, somber tone from the president in his brief statement about, Totally surrounded on both sides with either leisure or fundraising. And there was a New York Times article the next day written by Peter Baker and someone else was on the byline. I can't remember who. But it was all about, you know, nervousness or that the president was sort of not getting it with the tone and was this a mistake. And what I took away from the piece, lots of interesting reporting in the piece. Read the piece and, and it was a very interesting story. What I took away from, from that particular article was what wasn't in the piece. And what wasn't in the piece was any on-the-record defense of the president by a Democrat in Congress, for instance. You've got nobody out there now saying, hey, look, you know, give the guy a break. The only people you're getting that from are either current or former Obama administration officials. I mean, Bill Burton took to the pages of Politico, President Obama's former deputy uh, press secretary, and wrote a defense of the president and his vacations. But you're not hearing that from Democratic members of Congress. They've gone AWOL. I think that's a really bad sign for a president who didn't do much in the first place to cultivate relationships with Democrats and, and now is finding that the support from them that he, he may need for whether it's Syria or what have you um, is vanishing. One last question for you. You know, we're kind of at the end of the unofficial summer. We've got Labor Day around the corner, and then things will kind of focus and really focus on the campaigns. I would argue that I've seen more TV ads already in August in states like Georgia, where I am in a competitive U.S. Senate race than you normally see. But what's the mood among people, particularly Democrats, in Washington? Do they think that the uh, race is competitive? Is the thing is going to come down to the wire? Or are they saying, oh my gosh, there is a Republican tidal wave like 2010, and given the president's lack of popularity, the continuing stumbling, nothing to change the conversation away from White House incompetence, this is going to be bad, and we're already packing our bags to move to the minority in the Senate? Well, I don't think there's that sense of resignation from Democrats yet. At least I'm not hearing it if there is. Um, what I think you'll get from Democrats is they would like you to focus very much on the individual races. They think they have some reasonably strong or at least competitive candidates in these you know, handful, six, seven, eight races that everybody continues to talk about. And if you look at the polling on a state-by-state -state basis and isolate those races, you can see the Democrats uh, can be competitive and can find a way to hang on to the Senate. What they don't want to talk about, what Democrats in Washington don't want to talk about, 
is the president, because there is a strong correlation between uh, the president's approval rating and midterm uh, election performance. Uh, Sean Trendy at Real Clear Politics has done some terrific work on this. And, you know, basically, Democratic candidates run within five points uh, of the president 75 percent of the time, within five points of his presidential approval rating. And, of course, Obama's approval rating is near the lows of his presidency. And it's not enough to get uh, Democrats, particularly Democrats running in red states, states that Obama lost, above the 50 percent threshold. And so I think if you look at the president's approval and if you think that Republicans and conservatives are much more likely to turn out than Democrats, it's a pretty grim picture if you, if you do that sort of macro view, which is why anytime you talk to Democrats in Washington, they would prefer to talk to you about it on a race-by-race basis. Well, all i got to say is when you're pinning your hopes on winning Louisiana, North Carolina, or Arkansas this year as a Democrat, you are pinning it on a forlorn hope. Uh, Steve, Steve Hayes, thanks so much for joining us for the podcast. I appreciate it. You bet. Thanks, Michael. You've been listening to the Weekly Standard Podcast. Please be sure to check weeklystandard.com regularly for podcast updates. I'm your host, Michael Graham.